The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is proudly brought to you by Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Hello and welcome along to the second uh, business chat where we catch up with the spin-offs. Business editor Rebecca Stevenson and Callahan Innovation uh, communication specialist, senior copywriter Maria Slade uh, to talk about the issues that we've seen through the spin-off on the month and what's happening in the world of business. G'day. Good morning. Hello. Hi Maria. Hi Rebecca. Thank you very much for being here. So first up, like the biggest story in the last month has been the budget, of course, and you were down there, Rebecca. Yes, I was very privileged to get to go down to the lockup, my first time in a lockup. Good lamingtons. Yeah, what, what's it like? What's a, a lockup kind of sounds like? Is it like a lock-in where they shut the door and throw in the whiskey? Well, funnily enough, um, News Talk ZB's Barry Soper was late, and he did regale us with a tale of um, saying to the security desk, you know, it's a lock-up, not a lock-out. Let me in. So, yeah, it's basically once you're in, they lock the doors. They give you a bunch of papers and things with all their details in it, and you just go for it. You've got four hours. The embargo lifts at two, and, yeah, and then then it's go. And do they do, like, a presentation and tell you what they would like you to see and then give you the big documents and then you find the actual interesting stuff? You get the documents first, and then you've got those for a couple of hours, and then at lunchtime, um, the finance minister, Grant Robertson, and the rest of them sort of came out and sat down and gave a speech. But, I mean, you've got everything you really need in the printed material. There was a Q&A and that sort of thing afterwards where much smarter people than me asked really intense questions. <laughs> and there's a big kind of um, media management technique that goes on around budgets where they drip-feed the small... Um, announcements that they really want to get out there pre pre budget announcements what else do they do though do they by that same token do they hide things that they don't want people to actually pay attention to in amongst everything on the day it's definitely a challenge always to try and find some different and unique things that you can talk about in the budget like you say most of the big things are well flagged and we actually knew about most of the big things actually last year I mean their 100 day plan that they did last year really had a lot of the big announcements in it like Kiwi build and things like that so this time for me it was really about trying to find some of those really odd things um, so one of the first things I scanned for was the lollies for Winston's crew mm-hmm. and we obviously saw that the bloodstock industry are getting a special tax deduction for um good-looking horses was, I think, how someone terminized <laughs> it. Um, and they also got a super gold card um, health check, about a million dollars towards that. So you do sort of try and look for some outliers and some more interesting, quirky things that you can report on outside of the big things like health. And, and in the horse race kind of way that things get reported on these things, um, some people uh, drew the parallels between the amount of things that were kind of green um, 
helping and New Zealand First helping. And, and, and the difference was something between, you know, you know 600 million odd for explicitly green things to 3 billion odd for, for New Zealand First things. So they appear to have done very well. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to say Winston definitely went into that election negotiation in the box seat and he has definitely made good use of that. There was a lot of chat on the racing community boards um, in in the lead up to this budget about what racing might expect to get. So there was definitely expectation from his constituency, you know, the racing industry, etc., that they were going to get something from Winston and he, he delivered something. And on the business side of things, you know, like obviously it's the health budget, uh, you know, it's so interesting to see the National Party who um, have, you know, underfunded health. I think it's, it's pretty well uh, accepted across the place. Come out and complain that it wasn't an exciting budget when they have been having to um, refund a lot of things. Uh, you, you know, nearly a billion dollars of capital works on buildings. Mm. You know, that's not something you can invent a need for. So it has been kind of actively underfunded. Uh but because of those big spends in um, health and in the capital side of education, you, you know, has there been a lot of money around to do interesting things for business? I don't think business really was a big feature of that budget. It really did feel to me like a we're fixing everything national underfunded budget. That was a really strong theme that came through on the day. And he also really stressed Grant Robertson that it was his first of three. So it did feel like this was a staged sort of plan and rollout of what they're trying to do. And it doesn't feel like business is a big priority for them at the moment. Um, But they have left wiggle room. You know, they have left themselves quite a lot of money sloshing around. So I think that they expect there's going to be other things, possibly bad things, that are going to pop up, like with Mbovis. They've got a lot of potential big big bills looming around the corner. So oh. it was quite cautious, I thought. And public sector wages. This is actually where I think they have budgeted a lot of wiggle room. There were a couple of line items which talked about remuneration, and he did specifically mention in his speech about rising wages for public sector servants. I mean, the unions, obviously, are big backers of Labour. They're expecting that they're going to get something. We've got big negotiations coming up. They're talking about, you know, big increases in wages. That's going to cost a lot. So the government has left a lot of wiggle room in there for those. Yeah, which is the other side of the education and health thing. Uh, Part of the retention and attraction issue is that the pay isn't high enough for people to live middle-class lives in the major centres now, which is bananas. So... You, you know, and I guess that's a business thing. If you increase the amount of money in the economy, there's, there's dollars coming through maybe. But what mm-hmm. I found really interesting was that outside of the um, the tax grants, which we might jump into, um, what was the lack of things that were kind of uh, aimed at small business. So the Provincial uh, Development Fund, there's a lot of money there that may go into kind of um, boondoggles around the regions that could help um, the businesses <laughs> there perhaps. Yeah. But um you know, and if you're a large business who who does um, a hundred thousand plus of um, explicit research and development funding, there was something very mm. exciting in the budget for you there. But you have to be a pretty big business, I think, to be doing a hundred thousand dollars of R and D, yeah, uh, R and D work. So n- nothing, as far as I could see, for small business, including not even the word small no, business in no the ten mention. page ten page official document. No, and not even in the really big, massive, lots of pages documents we also got. There was just really no mention of business much at all. And I don't think that's really going to help with that sort of unsettled business sentiment that has been sloshing around since Labour and this new coalition government have come in. It didn't send a great signal that we're thinking about you and we're talking about you. 
Mm. Yes, and I think that SMEs, small business, you know, they, they need a hand really. You know, there was a, a survey done by CPA, the accountancy body of Asia-Pacific uh, small businesses and New Zealand and Australia come out quite badly mm. on a lot of the metrics and one of the things was that less than 60% of them grew mm. in the last year and only 14% of them put on staff. So they're kind of lagging a bit and, and they need a hand. And mm. uh, there was a Westpac survey that came out just this week too um, showing that um, 47% of SMEs cite work-life balance as a barrier to expansion. Yeah. So they don't want to work themselves into the ground trying to grow a business. And, you know, spreading themselves too thin is quite a problem. Mm. Um, they're having to deal with things outside of their skill set to try and grow their businesses. You know, they're focused on the idea or the technology or whatever it is, um, but not on the execution of a strategic plan to try yeah. and, you know, turn this into a money-making uh, venture. And uh, so, so what's the answer? You know, they, they can either hire in those skills, they can, they can bring in experienced mentors, uh, you know, perhaps they can build the leadership capability within their own business to help them along mm. uh, and you know that's not easy you know they, they need assistance in that regard and yeah I mean the, the tax credits coming in will will help some businesses obviously but as you rightly point out that's really for the bigger ones yeah and, and I really think you know if the goals in the business are to raise wages and there are um, you know moves to raise the minimum wage that personally I think are a great idea Perhaps it's a good idea for the small businesses, though, to have some kind of counteracting tax credit or some kind of thing that actually acknowledges that the entire cost of raising the wage economy is sitting on small business employers. Uh, minimum wage increases. Uh, GST means that their products are more expensive. Uh, and then um, to, to kick it off, you know, think things like extra public holidays, Mondayization mm. mean that it's incredibly expensive. Uh, but there's never anything on the other side of the ledger. Yeah, they're a bit of a forgotten child <laughs> at the moment. It's going to be interesting to, to see where things develop uh, if this new system of tax credits comes in. And, and it's still in the um, proposal stage, you know, and uh, get your submissions in by the 1st of June, people, <laughs> uh, because the details still being worked out. Yeah. But uh, from, from Callaghan Innovation's uh, perspective, it's quite interesting because obviously we administer the growth grants at the moment and that will change under the new system if it, if it uh, happens. Uh, but so that means the organisation is going to pivot and do other things like uh, it does the, the student and project grants and, and helping build innovation capability in businesses and there's all the scientists down at Gracefield that do mm. all the research and they run offshore delegations and there's all sorts of things that they do um, but the minister, Megan Woods, has actually referred to Callaghan as being a kind of a dating agency for innovation because the innovation ecosystem, as, as they like to call it, is, is incredibly fragmented in this country. You know, you've got business incubators over here, you've got, you know, capability courses there, you've got grants there, you, get, you know, it's all over the shop. And if you're a small business trying to, to grow, where do you go for the advice, where do you go for the assistance? And so it's very difficult to navigate. And that is a role that this agency could end up playing, being much more of a super connector mm. and kind of showing the way and, uh, you know, connecting networks and agencies and people and ideas and science and, you know, making it all happen. And, and that is happening in practice now. It's just not the maybe um, the, the primary goal of the organisation. Because if I think of the interactions I've had in, in work capacities with Callaghan, a lot of it has been about um, putting you in touch with other people, uh, telling you what there is to um, 
to try and apply for, uh, yeah, like acting as a connector. Yes, there has been, that, that's happening more and more, uh, and, and and sometimes in a sort of an unofficial way. For example, we had a company called Zingoshi, which are a couple of mums that invented a, a, a game for girls, to get girls into STEM subjects, and it's very sort of multimedia and interactive, and the technology is pretty amazing. Uh, but it took them a long time to get that off the ground, and they basically got to the point where they wanted to apply for the grant, but you've got to have the capital to be able to apply for the mm. grant because it's a co-funded thing. And so uh, the advisor at Callahan Innovation who was working with them on applying for the growth grant, uh, sorry, I, w- I can't recall which grant it was actually, but the, the grant they were applying for, he also worked with them on the capital raising process. So it was a parallel process. And this business in the end attracted the attention of Teresa Gatting and her co-investors. And so they got the backing, which was fantastic. And it also meant they could get the grant. So yeah, it was a parallel thing. So that's an example of, of where they kind of add value. Oh, that's cool. And the changes aren't, aren't finished there. But if Callahan does end up no longer administering grants, how big a part of that was uh, that of the Callahan like team or business? In terms of people, not that big. Uh, There's a pot of money there that needs to be um, given to businesses. But in terms of the actual administration of that, it's actually quite a small part of what the agency does. So it won't have that great an effect on its overall uh, structure and, you know, what it does every day. That's interesting. Um, Jumping into what's on the spin-off this month and, and being through the business section... Um, probably the podcast that had the most response from people was the one with Glenn Herod of Happy Cow Milk. Mm. And that was a follow-on from a story that was originally published on the spin-off where he talked about um, his journey. Uh, the the podcast went kind of deeper into some of the, the background of it. And there have been further developments too with him going into liquidation. Yeah. Um, his company was liquidated on May 14. I mean, look, it's definitely a story we're going to follow. I think there's a real interesting thing there for people. People are really into sustainable farming and sustainable dairying in particular. There's a lot of concern about the environmental damage. You know, we're talking about peak cow all the time. So it feels like Glenn was in a really good space where a lot of people are interested in being, but obviously a bit of a trailblazer, maybe trying to do a bit too much and, you know, getting ahead of himself. But I think the concept, people obviously really identified with it and want to support it and get on board with it the response was phenomenal to the story it went everywhere it went around the globe yeah but bananas and that that concept he had was uh try to improve two things in dairying one around the ethical side so not separating out um calves from their mother cows uh immediately giving them three months instead Mm. of a few days uh and to do that he built uh mobile milking sheds that meant you could go to the cows rather mm. than make the cows walk to the shed and so that, that that was quite a big innovation and a really interesting thing to do uh, that solved a problem but he also was trying to do something at the same time around um, sustainability practices with packaging mm. and trying to re-establish a glass milk bottle refill service through supermarkets so 20 years moved on from that and that that was what I think actually knocked him over. You do wonder if he tried to do too much at once. There was the the happy cows, and there was the processing of non-standardised, non-homogenised milk. There was the the glass bottles. It, it was all these things all at once. You know, you possibly wonder whether he should have started out with one aspect of it and then built on that. I don't know. And you you also sort of wonder, going back to the point about assistance with small businesses, whether he sought enough assistance early mm. on. He did go through the Sprout AgriTech Business Accelerator, which was good, but. 
you know, perhaps there was other assistance he could have got, people that could have pointed out um, that his business model needed a bit of tweaking. Part of it was geographical maybe too because he was based out of Christchurch and the um, the milk processing plants are in the North Island, yeah. which was astounding for me to find out. You know, there's there's quite a lot of the South Island and there's quite a lot of farming there. Yeah. I would have expected in a dairy country that there might have been a single processing plant um, available. The, the milk bottle plants were kind of, um, were very concentrated in ownership as well. And, and so, and also his major market. So kind of like, you know, um, wet kind of urban liberals are way more concentrated around Auckland and I you yeah. know, very much put myself in that kind of um, really concerned about kind of food provenance and stuff. Mm. It, it's, it's kind of, yeah, there's more of it up here. Definitely. I mean, like I think we were talking about it before the cast, but there's, you know, you're seeing this model now with Garage Project and these sort of niche brewers that are doing this return your flagon thing. So this appears to be a new movement. You know, it's good for recycling. It's good for sustainability. But with milk, it's just a lot more complex, isn't it, as well? I mean, the food safety regulations and things you have to adhere to. So, And and I think you're spot on, though. Most people are in Auckland that would probably get into this. And so for him to try and do something on that scale around Christchurch is probably quite hard just because there's just not that many people there. Because he he was building distribution as well as, uh, you know, none of the things existed. So building his own Mm. distribution to cafes and, yeah, Yeah. very challenging. But, like, the things that were interesting in that is, like, I I don't know if we're all just kind of willfully not aware of things. Um, You have a different perspective, Rebecca, because you grew up on a dairy farm, but it's like a a city kid and an inner city, you know, urban Mm. liberal, whatever, you know, like don't have a lot of relationship with the actual what goes into making your milk. And I don't know if it's just because I've willfully ignored it, but the fact that the entire dairy industry was built on this basic cruelty of every year making a cow pregnant and then mm. taking the baby away after a couple of days, and every animal has a relationship of um, you, you know mother-child. Uh, it's a very natural thing. Yeah, and, and then taking these these animals away to have them killed after a few days. Mm. It's quite, quite intense, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, like I say, I grew up around it. So to me, it's kind of the standard. I, I have to note, I grew up on a bull farm, not a dairy farm, but all the farms around us were dairy farms. So all my best friends lived on dairy farms. And, you know, I grew up seeing piles of dead bobby calves, you know, piles of them. And that's just, oh, that's a byproduct. You know, or, you know, I mean, I grew up watching my dad slit throats of animals and chop heads off things. And so (laughs) if you're a farming kid, life and death is part of being on the farm. But when it's on an industrialized scale, I think people do get removed from it. I mean, I've, I've seen abattoirs. I would recommend anyone, like if you can go and visit and get involved with the agriculture industry. Look, it hasn't stopped me drinking milk or eating meat seeing and observing these things as I grew up, but this is what the industry is about. There's no way to sugarcoat it. This is it. I wonder if more people had that relationship in the past. Because I think about, you know, my dad, when he grew up, he, in the school holidays, he was a teacher, he'd go and work at the meatworks. And that was a really standard thing that people did. Um, There were a lot more kind of like independent farmers, so it was Mm. less concentrated, and a lot smaller farmers. And I think we were perhaps like as a country more connected to the product we made. Mm. But as it's become more industrialised and you're getting kind of, you're talking about thousands and thousands of bobby calves being slaughtered, mm. uh, you know, in a season from one farm rather than, I don't know, tens. It's, it's, yeah, it seems like a lot of effort to go through and a lot of death kind of being visited. 
I think a lot of people don't care, though. I, I do think, <laughs> I mean, there are people that care, obviously. And, you know, what um, Glenn Herod was doing was very innovative idea. And there's definitely a market. I mean, you look at the likes of products like Lewis Road Creamery for a, for a premium milk. You know, people will pay. But it's a niche market. Mm. And there are lots of other people out there who really just want their milk at the cheapest price possible and they just don't think about the bobby calves. I think that is the reality from a business model perspective. Do you think it's an awareness thing? You know, like the first kind of people doing free-range chicken or um, cage-free eggs, you know, like mm. maybe maybe they were very much out the end and it was like, oh, they're just chickens. Yeah, And possibly. now it's like, oh, well, actually, I care about, you know, where my eggs come from. Cows are way more kind of emotionally relatable than chickens, <laughs> like, look, I mean, as, as a personal perspective, yeah. but they, they're soulful animals. They are. I mean, you look in their eyes, you can see there's a sentient being in there. You know, I mean, I grew up with calves as mm. pets and things, you know, they are lovely animals. Um, but yeah, I, I think Maria's right. People don't care. And I think also <laughs> because we have low wages, you know, a lot of people don't have a lot of money. They don't have the luxury of buying Lewis Road Creamery. They don't have the luxury of being able to live out their values when they're purchasing at the supermarket. They just need cheap milk because budgets are tight, you know, everyone's got to eat. So when it comes down to that sort of decision, yeah. you're just, you're feeding your kids, aren't you? You're not worrying about well, a bobby calf. And that was the other point that Glenn made was that the cost of producing milk and the amount that they get back for it hasn't really shifted in 30 years uh, in, in real terms was what he said I, have, I haven't checked that myself but the, the, the constant has been about 50 cents um, for, for, for the milk solids and he reckons he needed to get to about 80 percent uh, for um, the, the kilogram for it to be worthwhile and so that was quite interesting so it's nearly nearly double from where mm. they are for them to be able to actually afford the sustainable practices and then you look at it and you go okay so in the last 20 years, we've had innovation in terms of, you know, um, the, the we've added more land to the dairy industry. We've used more nitrates so people mm. are able to, um, you know, keep people, uh, keep, keep, keep more cows in, in smaller amounts. We've, um, we've done, you know, concentrated ownership, built bigger milking sheds, built kind of, you know, centralised the, the plants, done all these things that should mm. make it kind of more uh, effective subsidized it in the ETS because we haven't brought agriculture into any yep. of that stuff. Like there are all kinds of subsidies. They are a blessed industry. And, and, and <laughs> we, we, we allow, we allow um, dairy to bring in like minimum wage and below workers from other countries. And we've changed our um, laws around immigration and worker protections just to make it easier for them to have low wage workers. And still it's not economical. Like at what stage do you go, you're you're you've ruined our rivers. <laughs> you've changed our labour laws. Uh, you're making our ETFs more expensive. Before you go, dairy, maybe you're just not that great. Uh, did you see? It was very funny. Matt Nippet had a great story recently about um, MFAT being nicknamed the Ministry of Fonterra, I think, which sort of sums up how much influence they can have, sort of at that um, political level. But the thing that I keep coming back to is. They also take a lot of money out of Fonterra. Like every year, Fonterra aims to return up to 70% of its net profits back to farmers. Mm. So some people are making money and they're getting millions and millions of dollars back every year. So I think it's really important to recognize some people are doing really well out of dairy. Where is the cost being borne? I mean, obviously with your argument, a lot of it is falling on yeah. us, the New whole, Zealand. The whole country subsidizes it and there isn't any kind of... Um, 
lift in wages or lift in anything for the regions around it. It's wages bananas. at processing plants, like at Fonterra processing plants, are actually relatively good. Mm. On-farm wages are not at that level. And there's sort of a disconnect at Fonterra where they talk about farmer shareholders when it suits them and then when it doesn't. So they sort of act like, well, on-farm wages are nothing to do with us because we're a processing company, but you're farmer shareholders, so you are in charge of that also. So to me, I think they should be held more accountable. They shouldn't be allowed to split themselves off and be Fonterra, the big organisation, when it suits them, and then, oh, we're just little farming families on <laughs> other occasions. Yeah. Well, any, yeah, I mean, it's a... It's an endless kind of conversation, but yeah, it was really fascinating to kind of hear from a dairy farmer who'd been through a bit of that journey, and he still certainly wasn't in the, um, you know, um, uh, hippy-dippy side of it, you know, no. but he, he, he'd gone, well, I'd never considered that it was actually morally kind of, or emotionally kind of um, concerning to, to, mm. to, yeah, separate mothers from children and kill them after a couple of days. But he's gone through that journey, which is mm. quite interesting. And we're going to keep talking to Glenn. You know, I've been talking to Glenn this week. And, you know, it's a story that we really want to follow because I feel like a, a lot of people in the wider public are really interested in this. And I would also note, like, the mobile cow milking shed is actually rather popular in the UK. Um, Livestock Improvement, a New Zealand company, has been um, really into bringing the sort of New Zealand less intense on grass model over there because they obviously indoor a lot of their animals there so I mean around Dorset and places like that I've visited quite a lot of dairy farms that have imported New Zealand technology where they do mobile milk where they keep their cows outside so this is a movement that is gaining traction in Europe as well you know there's there is concern about keeping cows on farm eating grass not feeding them palm and you know yeah, it, it's yeah. just being a more natural sort of approach to it rather than it being really intense like we've been talking about and, and a lot of the things he was doing was just going back to how things were in yeah. the like um in the 80s that was the last time that we had you know widespread glass bottle um milk refill kind of thing happening around the country and since since the late 80s it's been dropping off and now that stuff's coming back which is quite interesting and it kind it's of back. mirrors a lot of that kind of neo-traditional you know food uh, care and, and standards i mean it could have been that he needed to pivot his business model and it could have been that the way he needed to go was to make and sell the mobile milking machines yeah. for example i don't know i don't know enough about it but you know, uh, uh, someone may have advised him that that would be a better way for mm. him to build a sustainable business and still make a contribute contribution for the better to mm. the dairy industry. Who well, knows? I thought he was great, and I thought, you know, mm. it's so sad that it's been such a hard journey. Um, and, and he has tried to do so many things, but yeah, wish him wish him every success. And like, I love the conversation he's starting. As I well. do too, yeah. and I think it really shows that people are concerned about where the products come from that they consume and what. Um, what price are we paying to get these products, you know, environmentally and for on the animal welfare side as well? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I tried not to kind of jump into that chat with him uh, with any of my personal stuff about it, but like I find the milk thing, you know, at a very natural level, it's kind of weird we're drinking cow breast milk into our like late adult years. It's a very, <laughs> when you think about it, it's a very, very weird thing that happens. Like, and yeah, I, 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 I yeah. It's Drink very, more coffee. It's very unusual. <laughs> very, very. Don't even go there with eggs then. Ah, yeah. Like, it's all, it's all deeply, deeply unusual. Anyhow, so, <laughs> um, the High Tech Awards and Tech Week, which are kind of um, linked yes. points there. Um, how's Tech Week been, Maria? 
Well, it is a huge event. There's just so much on. I can't recall how many uh, events there are, but it's... 490 plus, I saw. There you go. So (laughs) one cannot go to the mall. (laughs) I had a very interesting day on Monday. I went to the Manufacturing Design uh, Programme, which they call MAD, um, and it's run by the MAD Network, which is a cross-distance disciplinary group of uh, people in that space who are really into, they want to establish a a centre for research excellence um, bringing together the various different sides of the advanced manufacturing uh, sector to produce more greatness basically Mm. and the program was quite a random selection of people talking about all sorts of things. For example they had Mike Duke from the uh, Waikato Uni talking about the development of um, robotics in the agriculture industry and that's just fascinating what's happening there because it, the technology has now reached a tipping point. We've got all these challenges with labour shortages and health and safety and quality and all those kinds of issues that are going on. And at the, on the other side of it, the technology has now got to the point where the, the sensors are cheap, uh, there's the, process, the computer processing power, there's machine learning, and it is not going to be very long before machines are going to be doing everything from picking grapes to pollinating kiwi fruit. And, and interestingly, too, he made the point that it's going to be what they call a servitization model, which means that the orchardists won't own the machinery. Mm-hmm. They, there will be companies that will do it for you. So they will make money off this technology that they have developed, not by selling the machines, but by using them. Um, and, and at the same time, collecting lots of uh, really valuable data. Yeah. So, so amazing things going on in that industry. Uh, Really other interesting talks, like there was a a young academic called Monique Bateman from Victoria University who was talking about advanced materials, um, materials that haven't even really been invented yet. Mm. Uh, Like she was talking about this one called pentamodes, which is a, a solid that behaves like a fluid. So it's it's got the malleability of foam with the density of metal. I mean, you just can't even get your head around that. And so there are there are scientists working away creating this kind of stuff, and um, yeah, like there was another presentation from Fisher and Paykel. Um, Fisher and Paykel is leading an international program to develop a rating for um, fridges for how well they preserve food, because food waste is obviously a massive problem in the world now, and a lot of it is fruit and veg. And there are all all sorts of things you can do with fridges to preserve food better. And, uh, of course, we have the energy rating on fridges, but Fisher and Paykel were saying that that energy rating is often at the expense of food preservation. And so what they want to do is develop a – it'll probably be a voluntary standard initially, and they're working with, you know – uh, manufacturers from all around the world and consumer groups and scientists and everybody on developing this rating. And so you'll see it on the front of your fridge and you'll know how well it is um, looking after your food as a means of uh, reducing wastage. Isn't that amazing? That's interesting. I've never yeah. thought of um, the energy rating being at the expense of food preservation. It seems yeah. to be kind of a counter. <laughs> if like, what's the point? Yeah, well. Yeah, it seems like food waste is definitely a new frontier. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk lately about the circular economy. Obviously, ATED and the Sustainable Business Network put out this report recently about circular economy and food waste has been a sort of a key thing that people have wanted to target for a while. And I noticed a couple of days ago, which I thought was fascinating, that Tesco in the UK, which is like equivalent to our countdown or foodstuffs, has announced that they are taking best before labels off 
fruit and vegetables now because it almost becomes like a target for people. Mm. They buy fresh fruit and veg, they don't use their nose, they don't use their eyes, and they just hiff it because the numbers say so. So, I mean, just looking at that is just fascinating around the psychology of why are we so dumb. It would be so cool to put a sticker on it that said, like, uh, best before, just cut round the brown bits. Yeah, you know, I mean, it does seem like common sense here, but, I mean, my partner's like that. If anything is best before, he doesn't even sniff it. You know, it just goes in the bin. So it's really interesting that those big chains now are recognising it's an issue to that level. And the technology may even develop to the point where the best before dates on the food are linked to uh, the sensors in the fridge. And so that the fridge will tell you whether, you know, your food's good or not. Yeah, yeah time, time to make a banana cake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, My freezer's already full. <laughs> and something out of the, um, the, the high tech awards as well, which kind of time themselves for Tech Week and are a real celebration of the industry. Um, a really cool thing happening this year is a couple of the contenders for uh, the, the company of the year, the big gong there, who've been kind of all the big, big gong winners have been through all the little categories on the way up. And so they've been um, in the awards a lot. So Pushpay and Serco, mm. uh, and also Zero, who've won everything that's ever been through there, all of them recently announced their results. And um, of those three, uh, yeah, yeah, Zero has hit like a real profit after years of armchair experts wondering, you know, how they were ever going to have a profit, which is such a wonderful moment. And, um, Pushpay announced that they doubled their revenue, even from a really big base, which mm. is outstanding. And Serco are in profit. So it's like the industry's really grown up with all of these kind of big promises of these high growth companies coming true. Yeah, Pushpay is an interesting one because it's it's followed a very similar model to Zero, the, the traditional SaaS or software as a service model, where it is get in and own the market. And once mm. you've got the critical mass, then you're off. Uh, so you know their their result was a, a net loss of twenty three million, but that was a reduced loss. So, and they expect to be cash flow positive by the end of twenty eighteen. So yeah, yeah, you know calendar year. They're on track. Too. They yeah. have stuck to that target as well. You know they haven't shifted it around. Yes. So they, that's quite. They think they're going to get it. Obviously. Yeah, they really deliver. The interesting mm. thing with all three of those was that, um, or not 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 zero, but the other two, they announced that they'd done exactly what they said they would, and yeah. then the market was like, oh, that's boring. <laughs> Well, it's a bit like the budget, yeah. you know. Everything was pre-flagged. Everyone knew what was coming, so it's sort of like, mm. but, you know, great news. Well, <laughs> I, I just find Pushpay fascinating because um, what, what they've done is, is not actually that uh, exciting a product. It, it's a simple platform mm. solution, but they've gone into an untapped market. They've gone for these massive churches mm. in the US where people donate a lot of money. And it's not just a, a payment platform. It's a, what they call an engagement platform. So the churches are able to get all sorts of data on their, their donors. So whether they name and shame people for not giving enough, I don't know. But, yeah, it, it's a very clever, that, the way they've gone into a market. Yeah. And as you yeah. say, Rebecca, they've been really focused right from day one. Oh, and, and that idea, you know, um, the, the holy grail, that wasn't meant to be a part of it, the, <laughs> the, whole, the holy grail of um, SaaS is that recurring revenue. Yeah. And, like, if you're going to look for a place that's had recurring revenue for 2,000 years, Churches, week in, week out. Genius. Yeah. 10% tithe, yeah. people. It's you know? amazing. It's yeah. a really smart industry to get into. Um, and I think being so big in the US is obviously a really good thing for them. I can't see there are going to be any moves over there to restrict. The one thing that I think could potentially trip them up, but I wouldn't see that happening for a long time, is whether churches may lose charitable status and there may be some issues around that, but I cannot see that happening in the States. 
ever, mm. almost. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's amazing. Yeah, but it really feels like a moment of um, the industry growing up. So I imagine that the High Tech Awards will be a really happy affair this time. Yeah, and Serco too. I mean, they again have been very focused, very clear strategy. Uh, you know, every initiative they come up with is sense checked against their strategy, and they've really stuck to their knitting. And the thing is, they're not an overnight success. They've been around since mm. uh, the 1990s, so it's taken them a while uh, to get there. But you know, they're going to be a dominant force in that sector of you know corporate online travel booking systems. And they they they've followed a really interesting uh, share market trajectory, in that they got caught up in the the Wynyard and Orion Health kind of fear in the market around things associated with tech. But mm. they had like a really strong business. They, mm. they they had, you know, real revenue and they had signaled when they were getting back to profit. And the market just didn't care. They just like punished them mm. uh, by association. And then they've done everything they said and they've now been the best performing, well, one of the best performing stocks on the index as a result. It's really fascinating, isn't it? I thought, I mean, obviously Simon Botherway has has to make this work almost, you know, because he's got such a history of sitting off the sideline and really taking some quite severe pot shots at business leaders. So you think Simon Botherway must be very, very invested. He's the chairman, sorry, of Serco, and, and really invested in making this work. But I think one of the things that they're doing that's really clever is obviously partnering with um, the airlines, corporate travel arms, you know, so they've got Tandem Travel, which is Air New Zealand's corporate travel arm. And so, again, similar to the Zero model and how Zero partnered with big bookkeepers and accountancy firms and the like, I think it's really clever to partner up with these big corporate arms of the airlines. And if they can continue to get those sort of partners in the Northern Hemisphere, like they have done around here, I mean, you yeah. have to say that they could be very successful. They've got huge market share. Yeah. Like we, we, we used the product at a company I worked at and it was not a very pleasant company to use. But then you look at a lot of these great successful tech companies, like a lot of Datacom's um, products didn't have beautiful UI, but they worked brilliantly. And mm. I think that's probably part of, you know, you know, they had a product that worked very well, especially for finance because mm. it kept tight lids on everything. Uh, but they did also have probably, if anyone from um, Circo still has this going there, the most annoying password reset conditions in the world. <laughs> you had to have, like, there, there, were, there were literally kind of 10 conditions that you had to have for your password. You just gave up and you didn't book that travel, nah. see? <laughs> and your company was like, yes. Yeah. Some, some, something along those lines. <laughs> I, I thought it was, real. the one thing I would note is what I thought was really promising in reading their data as well is how much, uh, how many heads, how their headcount was still, they have a lot of people on customer service and a lot of people in development. They didn't don't seem to have a lot of bods doing fluffy stuff so I think if they keep focusing on their netting and keep developing the product and making sure the product is good and that they've got good customer service you know they're, they're in a good position ah, that's awesome well thank you so much Rebecca Stevenson editor of the spin-off business and Maria Slade from Callahan Innovation uh, thank you very much Alice Webberdell for producing and thank you very much for having us along and listening you've been listening to Business is Boring presented by Simon Pound Brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.